what I've found is that the better the talent you hire, the stronger you all are, right? Uh, and then people, if it's an incremental difference to get somebody that's the top of the field, they're paying for themselves. They'll usually pay for themselves in the first 20 days. This is a Real Estate Addicts podcast, episode 71, with your hosts, Ray Herto, HRV Homes. Dan Rubin, HRV Homes. Mark Savatsky, Choose Boston. And today we are joined in the studio by... Billy Sine for the Sine Company. Awesome. Billy, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. There's like a tilde over Sine, right? It's like a... Yeah, it's an accent aigu. It's, yeah, <laughs> it's very, very, very fancy French stuff. If someone types your name and they don't include that, is that... Is that, for yeah, is that insulting? Uh, it's not. It's not insulting. No, and and um, <laughs> it's more often when they do type it in, it returns something weird. <laughs> <laughs> well, awesome, Shortcut key. <laughs> so, mutual friend of ours, Dave Grossman, uh, actually was on the podcast what this past week and uh, hung around after the recording and agreed to sponsor uh, the podcast. So that's an exciting announcement. Dave is a friend of Billy's, friend of ours, First Boston Capital Partners, a uh, private lender. And um, if you guys would like an introduction, please reach out to the addicts, me, Dan, or Ray. We'd love to connect you guys. Um, nothing but good things to say about Dave and their company. So with that, let's, uh, let's kick it off here. All right. How'd you get started in real estate? What do you do? Let's just go over the, well, I, the I basics. Took a look we at your, have I took to. a look yeah. at your website and it seems like you, you wear a lot of hats. So <laughs> or you do a lot. That's very fair to say. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think we, we think of ourselves as two parts. Um, you know, we're advisory services first and uh, then investor developer second. So today the company is just about 90 people and um, about half of those are uh, staff working in property management and accounting and marketing and commercial services. And then the other half are, are actually, you know, independent contractor salespeople out, out representing clients, helping people do their own deals and working in the market. All right. So you're kind of brokerage and investor. Yep. Yeah, vertically integrated. You know, it helps us to sort of walk the walk and and also be better advocates for the clients. Are you more on the hold side or more on the commercial side? What what type of acquisitions do you typically go after? They tend to fall into two categories. Um, we do on the development side. We we do a lot of residential ground up or significant reconstruction. Then on the uh, on the hold side, we buy uh, some net lease property and uh, work with outside capital for that. So slight tangent, but one other area of vertical integration that I'm looking to get into, uh, appraisal services. This guy, I had this guy come by my house where our place is under contract. I just, we're, we're chatting and he told me that if you just want to chill and do one appraisal a day, figure it's about 500 bucks a day, a good appraiser, you'll make easy quarter million dollars a year. Sounds so pretty good to me. Sounds a little more lucrative than your notary service. How's that going? Ah, uh, yes, indeed. <laughs> Well, it's not as prestigious, but uh, it is. You, you don't know, get a stamp. No. No. So uh, That's very interesting. With that, yeah. And would he just take a class? He said you have to work under somebody else for two years. And in those two years, you make nothing. But once you have done your apprenticeship and you get your you know, proverbial notary stamp. You interesting. Know. Yeah. And our experience has been that there's not enough appraisers out there. Yeah. So you've got to think. You can start charging more, more and more ones. and more. Or good <laughs> Or good ones. I can definitely attest to that. We're, we're going through a loan right now. Um, and I think they told us the appraisals are like four to six weeks out. So I had to get an air rights appraisal once. That was, it was like a $4,000 appraisal for air rights that ended up appraising for, I'm going to say like $13,000. 
I assume that's a very specialized appraisal that you like. That, it, it was. That's another two years. Dan. Yeah. That's yeah. <laughs> the apprenticeship. What other areas of vertical integration does uh, the same companies, uh, what are you thinking about anywhere else? Architecture, bring in house construction. So, I mean, we, we end up getting a lot of really custom work for clients mm-hmm. because we can self-perform because we've got some staff architects and some staff construction managers we end up getting brought in for sort of specialized things once in a while and a developer or a client can't quite figure out their own technical situation. They'll call us and, you know, we'll put together something custom. Um, we'll help them through a specific piece of permitting or we'll help them think through, you know, we'll grab a residential brokerage guy and help them think through what's more marketable. It, it enables us to do a lot of really creative custom stuff for clients. How do you get started? Did you start at, on the brokerage side? Did you start on the investment side? Which, how did you kind of? It was a total accident. I was an undergrad at BC and uh, trying to make beer money and, um, and worked as a rental agent for C21. And I had a pretty good year, felt pretty cocky and uh, went and tried to ask for a raise. Um, it's 20, 24 or five or whatever I was, uh, young. And he said no. And I said, I quit. Um, and then I was an independent broker. So I worked as an independent broker for the first few years. And, um, and that was a lot of fun. Made some good money, started to add other services, and, you know, bring in friends. And, and then really five or six years ago is when we turned it up a notch and started hiring for talent and taking on some bigger stuff. Nice. Yeah. That's cool. So it was a total accident. Total accident. It's funny how many people run into those kinds of roles. Just, it happens, right? Yeah. What did you go to school for, you said? Uh, economics. Economics. Yep. And here you are in construction. I remember about 10% Real of Real estate. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Everything's economics, right? This is true. Very Everything's applicable. trade-offs. Yeah. Everyone's, I'll, I'll yeah. leave it there. <laughs> I did have a question that, that I, Ray and I always go back and forth on and, and we have discussions. If you're doing your own development and you have your in, own in-house brokerage that's selling your product, do you ever get pushback from clients saying, are you going to prioritize your pushing your product over mine if I give you the listing? Because Ray and I go back and forth on that all of the time. No, actually. In general, we find that it's an advantage. So first of all, internally, we're structured in teams. The people that are working and selling our product are uh, typically on the payroll. Uh, They are not working with clients. They're staff people who are dedicated just to pushing our product. With clients and and, uh, developers, who may want to work with us, they see our marketing, they see what we're capable of. They work with a different team um, or they work with some in some combination, but they get the benefit of all the work that we're putting in to having a development delivery platform. So, you know, we've, if we're delivering four or five, six projects a year of our, of our own with staff that's dedicated to that and marketing team that's really dedicated to that thinking, our clients actually benefit from that. You know, our, our guys, our team collectively is real true experts at delivering new construction. So any of the agents that are working with us as independent contractors or working with outside developers, they have access to all that same resource and can deliver all that same resource, but not be competitive because it's a different team. Billy, what's it like working outside the United States in Cambridge, Massachusetts? (laughs) (laughs) So I get that a lot. The People's Republic? (laughs) Yeah. I, you know, I, we get that a lot. I love Cambridge. You know, I think Cambridge, I, we've, that's where we started. We, we've done most of our work. Um, and it, it gets a, it gets kind of a worse rap than I think it deserves. 
Tell me more. My, my experience with Cambridge is that, you know, if you're trying to get something permitted, you're trying to get something done, you really just need to not expect them to do it for you. If you go in there and you, uh, you know, you understand the zoning and you understand the, the neighborhood that you're working in and, you know, the context of the project that you're proposing, you're, you're not going to get some unruly pushback. The trick to Cambridge is to sort of see the future and mm-hmm. know what they're going to be angry about before they get angry. Not that different from, from Boston, perhaps. I, although they do have a two-year demolition delay. So in Boston, if you get imposed with a historical significant building in a landmarks district and there's a demolition delay, you are slapped with a 90-day wait. You can take that. In Cambridge, it's 24 months. Mm. Hmm. That's true. That's tough. That's true. And, uh, you know, I, I have a very, very, very loving relationship with the Historic Commission in Cambridge. I uh, respect a lot what they do. It is sometimes not uh, based in anything that seems to make sense. But even with that delay, if you work with them, they generally are able to work with you. That's good to hear. Have you done anything in Somerville? I've not done any uh, construction in Somerville. We've worked with a lot of clients who have as broker and advisor. And Somerville, we've intentionally avoided for the last few years. As do we. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, you know, I think it's a great place to live. <laughs> don't, don't, not interested in building there. Yeah. Are there any other uh, tools in your Swiss Army knife of vertical integration that we haven't covered yet? Any specialty things that you do that others necessarily don't? Well, one thing, I mean, one thing that, I mean, the, the advising component is one thing that I don't think a lot of traditional brokers really touch upon. Consultancy. Um, consultancy, yeah. So can you maybe expand on that a little bit more and kind of explain what, what type of consultancy slash advisory you, you do for some of your clients? Selfishly, how do you how do you structure your fees for consulting <laughs> services? Um, Mark's just digging right into the numbers. <laughs> Mark's like, how much? No, I mean, I, I do a little bit of consulting, and uh, I started out with like an hourly scheme, uh, scheme, scheme. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> huh. huh. yeah. Anyway, uh, quickly moved to like more of a monthly retainer type uh, services, and I just found that like the hourly and writing down every ten minutes someone called it didn't work for me. Yeah, I think uh, it really depends on what the what the advisory is. Mm-hmm. Um, if people are looking for permitting and and uh, you know um, owners rep type services, it's going to be based on a, a an expected hours um, and an expected staff time, and we'll typically put together a proposal that projects that, and then we try to hit that number or stay under it. If it's on the to answer the earlier part of that question, working with us as a broker, for example, to deliver a new development, the real estate IQ that that broker you may be talking with has access to from prior sales data, from, you know, cost of construction timelines, understanding the process of closing out a project is, it's pretty rare in the market. I think not a lot of our brokerage competitors have quite as close a connection to it. There are many, many very good brokers out there that don't have that connection, but that is definitely an advantage for us and for the people that work it's with us. It's very niche. Yeah. So from a soft skill side, tell us how you're able to sort of build that team and keep them. Because obviously talent is in short supply and everyone's got lots of options and you have an awesome uh, group over there with you. So it comes down to two things, culture and you pay them. Yep. <laughs> We've tried very hard to create a culture of uh, collaboration and really hiring the best people we can. Um, so almost every leadership position is either somebody that is grown with the business over a period of time and really understands the culture, or they are a hired gun, somebody that we've recruited through a lengthy process. 
and they have to be the hired gun and also be in the culture. Do you use recruiters? We do for some of the more challenging roles. If we're really looking for someone senior level to run a, a service line or, um, you know, uh, a great example, we used a, an outside firm to find our chief marketing officer. We wanted to nail that and we you know, ran a national search. Sometimes it helps to work with a talented headhunter more locally. Uh, you'd be surprised how often people call us up and say, hey, are you hiring? <laughs> so we do keep a pretty good pulse on the market and the talent that's out there. And there's a lot of people that come sort of naturally that way. On the development side, um, are you f- you're focused mainly in Cambridge or are you, are you developing outside Cambridge as well? So we, we started in Cambridge. We knew Cambridge so well. So it seems to everybody like that's where we are. We have started to venture out and we've started to look at some other deals. From a development perspective, I don't think we're ever going to really change our, our niche, which is these you know, smaller 5 to $15 million project costs. Um, you say 15 or 50? 15. Okay. Yeah, that was my um, next question is the size of the projects you're doing. Yeah, well. most of them fall, fall into that range. There's one that's larger than that right now, but 5 to 15 is kind of our comfort zone. And you know, we're doing that with our own equity, no partners, gives us a lot of almost like a big design build kind of comfort. Do you see those yourself or are you hiring that out? And we self-perform those. You do? Yeah. Wow. E- even the larger stuff? Yep. Yeah, there's a good, there's a good the, the development team is fantastic. Well fleshed out, a lot of talent there. I honestly don't have to do much with it anymore. anymore. That's great. We're looking at other complementary markets. We're doing one project in the back bay now. And um, we got a, a really neat one um, that we're uh, working on in the corner of Fresh Pond and Brattle doing a very, very, very large single family project. It's kind of a little bit of an advance from what we've done. Are you going to move into it? No, <laughs> no, no, no. Have you th- you've thought about it though. I have thought about it. No, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not, I'm not going anywhere like that anytime soon. Tell us about the stress. You're owning a business. Development <coughs> is inherently stressful. Did you ever think about just getting your appraisal license and making 250 <laughs> grand a year? <laughs> I absolutely have, uh, have thought about the stress a lot, but I, I like the stress. And for me, it's like, I love this stuff, right? I get up in the morning and thinking, what am I doing today? What's the, what's the activity that I can work on? Is it a project or is it a client work or is it a, uh, a recruiting process? I love it. I'm always interested in like, what's the number? You know, it's like we have all the stress. We're constantly putting, redeploying chips. Like, is there a point where you have enough chips that you just go like, I'm good. And it seems like that number just with everyone I talked, it just grows and grows. It's like, you know, I don't like there's there's any thoughts. Goal. Yeah. There's no number for me. No? No. I, I enjoy it's, what I'm doing. I'm having sport. a blast. It's just yeah. winning. It's a sport. Yeah. It's just winning. I mean, it's why, why do billionaires just keep working forever? Like Warren Buffett, he doesn't have to work, but he loves it. So they can go to space. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Richard Branson. Let's talk about scaling because it sound, sounds like, you know, you, you got to a point where, okay, all of a sudden you've decided to kind of like blow this thing up. How, how did you take that step? What made you decide or when did you feel like you were ready to take that step? Um, and who was your first hire? So, yikes, my first hire is an agent uh, named Tom, still with us today. And uh, he works mostly in uh, rentals and sales in Cambridge. The moment that, I, that you're referencing meant, that I mentioned, that was me realizing that we had figured out enough things through mistakes you know, we, we realized, okay, we've, we've tried brokers, we've tried management, we've tried, uh, you know, development and all these things are great. What's the way that we're going to like change the industry, be known, 
not just another developer, not just another broker. What's the way that we're going to make this thing something really special? And that, you know, I think that that actually just was a natural, okay, we've messed things up enough times. Let's not ever mess up again. Um, and around that same time, we rebranded, we made an internal commitment to only hiring really the best that we could get and paying them. And, uh, and that worked. It's just worked. How do you know when it's the right time to start paying people? Because, you know, we wrestle with that all the time. And we, you know, it's, you said it's not cheap. Talent in Boston is not cheap. So kind of how, how do you know the business is, can sustain the talent that you're bringing in? For me, the most fun that I have is working with the talent because, you know, I mean, you guys, this is why you do the podcast, right? You, you meet people, you hear other ideas. <laughs> what I've found is that the better the talent you hire, the stronger you all are, right? Uh, and then people, you know, if, if, it's, if it's an incremental difference to get somebody that's, you know, at the top of the field, they're paying for themselves. Mm-hmm. They'll, they'll usually pay for themselves in the first 20 days. It's the time to get the best talent you can is right now. Uh, it's, it's, there's no waiting for it. There's no like, it's going to be easier down the road. You got to kind of suck it up now because they're going to pay for themselves and they're going to make you better. I mean, I know most of the stuff that I know now from working with other people who have been doing it longer than me. So you mentioned rental, uh, rentals and sales. Rental question for you. New York City, I think it was last year, created a law that landlords have to pay the commission for rentals. You can't just put that on the tenants in New York City, at least. What are your thoughts? Well, there's a a pretty recent um, update to that. Oh, tell us. So there's been a a national pushback against tenants and move-in costs and, Mm -hmm. um, and how expensive it is to live in an apartment. And... I'm going to mess up the exact agencies that were involved, but the current administration recently backed out of, a, uh, of an arrangement with the National Association of Realtors that would have addressed some of those issues. It's a really slippery slope. I think what you're talking about is an interference in private business. Nobody should be able to tell anybody what they can charge. If you don't want to hire them, don't hire them. And that's my own personal view, because in, in a fair market, they'll work themselves right out of a job if they're, if they're charging too much. The, uh, the, the pushing of uh, fees, making it illegal maybe to you know, have a tenant pay a fee, all that you're doing is you're pushing it. You know, every landlord is just going to absorb that and increase rents. Right? It's, it's, it's a push-pull. They have to meet their debt service coverage or they won't, and that either puts pressure on the landlord or on their lender um, and ultimately increases costs, decreases motivation for investors to get into being a landlord. It's a futile effort. doesn't actually solve any of the issue. It's just like the, the affordable housing topic that we talk about all the time. It's very similar. And it's similar to a lot of pushback that's been happening with respect to MLS broker fees, why a buyer or excuse me, why a seller has to pay the buyer's half. There's definitely a lot of chatter, we'll call it, about that and whether or not it should change. And that's specifically referenced in that uh, withdrawal from the National Association of Realtors uh, conversation. Yeah, I, I mean, I, if I were to argue, and not that I don't, dis- not that I disagree necessarily, but I would say that they've almost cornered the market. It isn't a pure market because MLS 
creates something of a barrier to information, though it's been opened and there's been all kinds of challenges to that. So it's now more so than ever, any consumer can just have access to the same information a realtor traditionally could. But that might be my only thought is um, that it's, it's not a pure market. So well, you're saying the information should be completely public all well, the time. I, I, I'm saying that like, if I don't hire a rental agent, I, I, it, it's just hard to do it yourself because they've sort of have this whole platform that's only available to them and a network whereby like, Hey, this is, if I just call you and you're like, I'm Ray, I represent this property. I don't have a realtor. You, Ray would just go, great. Now I'm going to make a full month's commission instead of 50%. There's not really that many opportunities where you can come in as a just typical consumer and say like, Hey, I'd like to see that property. I don't have a realtor and forego the, the real estate fee for the, for the rent. Or, I mean, do you think that makes sense? Do you think they should be, they do you think that they should be paying 50% I, I'm not if they're going directly to. For me, what's mo most important in that conversation is actually consumer protection. And that's the piece that a lot of people forget when they talk about who's paying these fees. When you're paying these fees, Everyone uh, and everyone's had a bad experience with a real estate agent, but when you're paying these fees, you are hiring a licensed professional. Um, hopefully, you're hiring a good one, and they are not working for that one transaction. They're working day in and day out for a career to make a living, and they're experts. So I can tell you right now, if I happen to be working for a seller client as an agent, as a licensed agent, and I have a customer come in into a room and have a conversation with me about buying my client's property versus a customer come in that's represented by an agent, the unrepresented buyer is going to pay more. Even if they can figure out that compensation, I'm so much better equipped to have a conversation about purchasing that home and represent my client than that customer is to represent themselves, no matter how comfortable they think they are or how much information they have access to, because it's my full-time job. And I think most good realtors think that way and should be capable of, of representing their client's interest, not necessarily the consumer. So I, I think a lot of the conversation about, you know, why are they getting paid so much? Why, you know, should, should consumers have information about how much is available for buyer compensation? It's kind of uh, forgetting the fact that buyer compensation is out there literally to provide buyers consumer protection is to make sure that they're represented through a transaction. They should be. But back to your point, if, if it's a free market and, and, a, and a consumer says, I'm very educated, I have a degree in um, housing economics and this is what I study and I'm, you know, also have a legal back, I don't know. They should be able, they, they, they could certainly- but Not everybody, there's so many, that's no. like one tiny I mean, But we're trying to protect the masses. Yeah. It's like what Uber, uh, did to the taxi business, essentially, if you open it up and kind of make anybody able to transact on the buy or sell side, you're going to end up with lower costs potentially, but you're also going to end up with the wild west to start. I mean, I'm arguing out of both sides of my mouth here, but I'll say that I don't love licensure either. I sometimes think that that's just like a form of job protectionism. Mm -hmm. There's too much licensure in the country. Like, I don't know. Do you think that uh, there's all there's all kinds of ridiculous licenses? Yeah, I'd say probably more on permitting. Well, I'll give things, you a real example. My, yeah, my wife's in healthcare. If you want to be a physical therapist now, you need a doctorate degree. So it used to be same to just, be a pharmacist. It used to, to be, be a, a four-year degree, then it was a master's degree, and then the group of physical therapy associate 
now we require a doctorate degree. And it's just to protect the people in those positions from others joining, joining the field. Well, maybe yes, maybe no. So you thought they, were, they basically were like the barrier to entry is too low, we got to raise it? I mean, I'm sure it's the people within there who have an interest in limiting competition. I'm sure there's other good reasons as well, but I'll, I'll harp on this one. I think healthcare versus, yeah, one could argue that building houses, I mean, again, a lot of that kind of gets deferred to, or, or selling houses gets deferred to like architecture and engineers. Mm-hmm. I mean, they need to be licensed and have all of these things, even appraisers, two years to become an appraiser. Do you think that's appropriate? No, I don't. I think that someone could look at my background and say, geez, this kid's been in real estate for 15 years. The builder's done all this. I'll let him do appraisals for me. So I, I think that's actually a good example of where it's probably I mean, I needed, too much. I needed a letter to get my CSL from another contractor. So we've all also met the same agents or insurance agents or physical therapists. And you think, how the hell did they get that license? Uh-huh. That's an important piece too. I mean, the, the, the protection, you know, it's very nuanced in my view, the, you know, uh, how much, what state you're in and what type of license it is. And, you know, there are some trade associations out there that advocate very heavily for mm-hmm. stronger, tougher licensure and other states that are, sort of throw their hands up in the air and don't have it at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and <laughs> so it's tough to, you know, project a, a, a one side, you know, one answer to it. But mm-hmm. at least with real estate agents, I'd prefer them to be licensed and have some, <laughs> some training. I had, a, I had a tough experience. Well, I don't mean to shit on realtors at all, but <laughs> this happened to me. Dan knows the story. This was about two weeks ago. I was bidding on a rental property. <sighs> Called the realtor at like noon. I said, can I get into the house? His first question to me was, do you have a realtor? And I said, no, I, you know, I am a licensed real estate agent. And uh, he said, okay, well, the first showings are at 8 p.m. Presumably everyone's getting that same answer. I'll give him the benefit of the doubt, which I doubt that is true. And then I submit my offer that evening. He says that uh, my offer is currently the highest. There is another competing offer. And then he tells me that the competing offer has used his services as the, uh, he says, this gentleman is also a licensed real estate agent. He's using me as his broker. Are you going to use your, are you going to represent yourself? And I said, you know what? I'm going to kick my two and a half percent back to the seller. You said I'm already in position A, and now I'm going to sweeten the deal by $16,000 for the seller. Who you should be obligated to tell. Yeah. The, I called him again in the interim. He said, oh yeah, I'm just trying to get in touch with the seller. And uh, the upshot here is the next phone call I got from him was, we're well, really sorry. Your bid was not the highest in the end. Oh, really? Someone, so that's that other buyer is just me and one other guy. He came forward with a, with a superior offer and uh, So maybe, day. maybe offers should be done like online auctions or something. They should be put out there. They could be real. You submit your offers. Yeah. That's to make an, it more transparent. That, that situation you described yeah. happens every day. I know. I'm, I should have been smarter than that, though. <laughs> so I really should. I've kicked well, myself for not having answered the question at noon that day by saying you well, represent what, me. What's the answer? How do, you, how do you get around that? How do you? Yeah, there's, uh, my experience has been that. Because it's happened, the same thing's happened to us. Yeah, my experience has been that um, you're, you, there's a, what you're finding is frustrating is that there's a, correlation between whose offers is going to get accepted and how much money that agent is making, right? That's what they're looking for. They're looking for yeah. hiring on the back end. They're looking for a double fee. They're looking for more money. And drawing a one-for-one one between that and some sort of unethical behavior is really difficult because you'd have to establish that, you know, the seller would have done better mm-hmm. had it well, yeah. gone a different way. I mean, they're supposed um, to be, the, they're, and it's the fiduciary responsibility to the, to the seller. It's the fiduciary responsibility to the seller but also to the seller to make an informed decision, right? You, the, the listing agent's 
job selling, representing the seller is to make the seller comfortable, have them make an informed decision. And if that's being done, the compensation that that broker is able to work for themselves kind of doesn't matter if the, if the seller is making the most that they can make or making a decision in a different direction as an informed customer, informed client. Um, it's a, it's a tough one. My best guess is when this closes, it will, the seller will have made more than my offer was, but I think that the, this broker, you know, turned all the cards right side up and showed them to his client and said, here's where Savatsky's at. You need to be higher than that. And he'll be there in a dollar. And, uh, and so he, he wins. But I think that if he had come back to me and let me have another opportunity, just the same, I would have gone a dollar and one, and this would have gone on in the seller's interest, but that's escalation clause. And last thing is this guy's a loser. Like I, I, <laughs> I, I truly think that if he was a successful broker, real estate agent, he wouldn't behave this way. He's, he's in it for the long term to build relationships and he's trying to get more value for his client. But unfortunately hmm. certain guys, See, I was able to use that to, to my advantage yeah. when I bought my place in New Hampshire, less competition though. A little at the time, yeah. 2019, the place, they had already tested the market in, in the fall and then they hadn't sold it. It was still under construction. And basically I came in and I, I was showing Dan, there was a whole list of like things. Oh, do this, do this, do this. I need you to finish this room as a family room. Dan laughs. He's like, I'd never accept that offer. And I was like, well, I'm going to submit it anyway. And the guy, and he goes, oh, you're working with an agent. I said, no, I said, I'd love to work with you guys directly. And I think that kind of helped seal the deal. And I didn't get everything on my list, but I got the things I really wanted. Sometimes, sometimes we've, uh, you know, we've advised, um, customers who ha take that approach when we're representing sellers, um, you know, do that if you want, get an agent, if you want, work with another agent in the office, if you want, uh, you know, have, have some buyer agency, but really it doesn't, it shouldn't, uh, influence whose offer gets accepted. Agents should be doing the right thing by their client. It's really only in situations where there isn't, uh, an ethical downside mm. um, that they should be allowed to do that kind of thing. Well, yeah, I don't think they had any other bids, but he did try keeping it like the shady factor was that they did try keeping it on the market while we were under contract. And I was like, well, we're contingent. You get a market as contingent. And then it was, that was the end of it. So I wasn't sure if they were still trying to shop for the offer. Cause they hadn't gotten like all of the, the fine details of those contingencies, but yeah. I don't think they loved it. So was it contingent or not contingent? Well, it was contingent <laughs> upon coming to an agreement, right? So the main thing was coming to a price to finish off a room that was unfinished at the time of them listing it. Sounds like it wasn't contingent. Buddy, buddy of ours is, uh, is looking at real estate in Bermuda, told me that until you sign a PNS, there's no, uh, there's, there's nothing that makes it exclusively yours. Well, it's, offer acceptance, good, yeah. good and well, shake hands, sign something. But until like a formal contract. It's a purchase and, contract. Yeah. They don't have offer purchase uh -huh. contract. They just have purchase yeah. contract. Yeah. But you can put your contingencies in there. Well, so anyway, either way, it worked out. That's good. But I mean, to your point, like I, I did feel that shady factor that the fact that it wasn't contingent and under agreement on the MLS until I brought it up. Well, the tricky thing I think sounds like you had was you had an agreement to agree. Right. And those, those are pretty challenging to. I didn't want to screw myself either. Right. Like, oh yeah, I'll just agree to whatever price you set. Like I, I had to agree to it as well. So that's a real thing. Ag agreement to agree. I recently came across that. Right. I've come across it more, more times than I want. <laughs> we agree to talk about, it's almost like we need to have a meeting to have a meeting. That's in the corporate world. <laughs> Billy, any cool trends you're seeing right now in residential development? 
stuff that you guys are doing, ways that you're looking at floor plans or new developments, things that you're trying to incorporate into your builds? Yeah, maybe something that came out of COVID, like how the world has changed. No, I th- there was definitely a, a, a moment where uh, it seemed like there was a, a, a real effort by buyers to find outdoor space. Mm-hmm. And I think that a lot of developers and in mostly architects and designers were thinking very, you know, how do we, how do we do this? This is, this is the new thing. We're going to do yard spaces everywhere and balconies and, and uh, more open layouts. And I almost think that that's actually withdrawn a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems like it was a hot button uh, or an excitement, but it's not really a thing anymore. That's just been my experience recently. Maybe you know? less open concept as a result of COVID if folks Maybe. want more privacy and yeah, there's definitely less people. We see it on the property management side and the rental side. There's definitely less people looking at larger bedroom counts. Mm-hmm. You know, most people are trying to stick to two bedrooms, three mm-hmm. bedrooms. Yeah, no more roommate share kind of situations. A lot less of that, yeah. Yeah. On the rental side. Yeah. What Why, about on the are, bu- there, are there a lot of buyers that are like co-buying? I have a couple of rentals in Southie and all, all three bedrooms. They're all a bunch of young professionals rooming together. They don't care. Competition. Well, they're, they're the ones raging. Are they the ones that... You know, Ed Flynn's all upset about. Uh, there's there there's probably Greek letters above the front door <laughs> in these houses. So, do you still do any of the management? Or, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And what are your thoughts on management? It's a tough one. It's a. I love management. We we obviously uh, represent a lot of clients in in uh, Greater Boston and and um, in New York. And it's the kind of business which is wonderful if you are doing it at any scale and at any professionalism. It is. Many, many, what we found is the consumers often don't know the difference between management and maintenance. And so we've actually partitioned those out, the two different service lines within the business. But in order to make money and have it be a good business for us and, uh, and be able to stand on its own, it, you really have to scale. You, know, you, you, can't, you can't do it on a two-person operation well. To do it well, you really have to do a lot of it and have people dedicated to it and dedicated specifically to management or maintenance, not both. But we do love it as a business and, and um, you know, we find it's, it gets us access to deals. It, it becomes an auxiliary service for um, our investor clients um, or it can be a feeder for brokerage work. Um, you know, if, we've, if we own, or sorry, if we manage a condominium association with 50 units in it and we're doing a really great job, uh, we're keeping ourselves front and, you know, front and center, top of mind for all of those homeowners or, or investors that own in that condo association and the likelihood that they're going to be comfortable hiring one of our brokerage team to market that unit or get a, get a buyer for that unit uh, is higher because they know that we know the, bu- the building. So we, if just as a standalone business, management and maintenance are great at scale. Once you get to some scale though, when working in a vertically integrated company like we are, it becomes a real value add because um, you start to unearth some intercompany referrals that you wouldn't have gotten otherwise. Yeah, that's a good point. It's something else, uh, I guess, follow-up question to that. Would you have on your brokerage side uh, folks that are selling also do the renting or are those two separate teams? We don't stop the, uh, the sales brokers, the sales associates um, from doing either thing. The only thing that we will do is sort of put a governor on if, if they're a newer agent and they somehow find a client that wants to sell a $50 million portfolio then we might step in and say, you know, you need to work with somebody more senior and make sure that that client is uh, being represented well. But 
Yeah, I was going to say, I'm sure the client appreciates yeah, that. The yeah, the client definitely does. <laughs> You're um, our newest guy <laughs> or gal. But, um, so you don't have any like dedicated rental agents versus sales agents? No, the agents are allowed to, you know, they're, they're allowed to do whatever they're more comfortable with. And we do a lot of coaching to try to help them figure out what is right for them at this, whatever point in their career they are. You read any good books lately? Not really, no. <laughs> you listen to any good podcasts? Yeah. Um, it's real estate acts one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just because we gave you a t-shirt before we started. <laughs> I've been listening to Hidden Brain on NPR. It's a good plug. That's it's cool. a good podcast. It's for like- uh, You're a podcast addict. Yes. Mm. It's like, pop, I like pop psychology, you know? And then it's very much in that vein. Like Malcolm Gladwell. Uh, I listened to a little uh, Crime Junkies. I don't know if you guys have listened to that one. Yeah. yeah. I like true crime. I'm yeah. doing a little Joe Rogan. True crime, the show? No, it's just as a genre. Overrated, underrated, or appropriately rated. Yes. So. Not sure if you follow, you know, the rules, we're going to throw out an idea, a concept, something, and you're going to respond and let us know if you think it's overrated, underrated, or appropriately rated with a little quick uh, explanation of why. And so I will start it off with video intercom systems, overrated, underrated, appropriately rated. I would say they are in residential properties. They are overrated. Agree. Well, what size? (laughs) I think, uh, I think that they're kind of overrated all the time. Uh, um, I, I haven't seen a really great use of one. Um, they're cool. They're a neat feature. I don't think they add much value. I actually think they're required by one of the codes, right? After a certain number of units, it has to have video or that sort of thing. We just ripped out the video intercom. We had those little screens, like, uh, when you came into my unit in my building and we're just like, it's, it's only a four unit building. Let's, let's just put ring doorbells. And it's like for $110, so much better that that world's going to go away. Well, yeah, I think any, any type of screen integration or something that's physically mm-hmm. in the wall, I think it's immediately dated the second you install it. Just like remember the old developments, they used to have the little iPod docks. docks yeah. And it's with like a big, like with it the, didn't have the, with yeah. the old charger. And it's like, oh, well, all those are completely useless the, now when they those went it. away in like a year, like a year after so you said it. So I think, I think. I think if you do it right, and I think if you quote unquote future proof it, where it's like, okay, it uses power over ethernet or it's Wi-Fi enabled so you can easily swap something in and out later on, I think those are useful. But um, I think it depends on the product. The problem with the ring is, is if you have 50 unit building, you're not gonna have 50 (laughs) rings outside of the building. Just put one next to each gas meter, right? (laughs) So it gets harder, I think, when you do larger larger buildings. (laughs) Mark's about to spray his coffee all over the place. That's funny, Ray. All right, Ray, you're next. All right, well, we'll just keep talking about this kind of weird stuff. Smart monitoring things like temperature, moisture, sensors to preventative, like automatic shutoff valves to prevent damage. Even even use any of that? No. Good. I like the water one. The water one to detect, like, so it goes on your main and it knows if there's a small drip or a catastrophic failure. I think that that's... uh, I feel like that would be good until you have like a leaky toilet where it's not, and I mean, I mean like a bad flapper, right? So not an actual leak, but it thinks it is. And then it shuts off the water to the whole building. Ross from T2, our mechanical engineer friend, he, he's got like his whole home. He could pull up his phone and tell you like how many parts per million of this his kids are currently, you know, breathing in and that. And so, oh, he has the same thing yeah. on his uh, electric panel he was saying, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. Well, how much consumption? Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Dan? Uh, rooftop pools. Amazing. Uh, underrated. Put them all everywhere. Wow. I agree. Except maybe not in Florida. Oof. Oh, right. right. Man, Too soon. Set me up there. 
It wasn't on the roof. It was on the top of a parking garage. Well, that's also, that's a whole different topic because they're having that big debate about who's actually responsible for a building built in the eighties. It's the association folks. No, everybody is getting sued. That's, that's the answer. That's what's going to happen. Yeah. I used to have a business law professor in college. He used to have this refrain in the middle of class and he would go, who are we going to sue? And then in unison, everyone would respond, everybody. <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> wow. That's the American way. All right. I'll stick on the roof as well. Solar panels. I think appropriately rated. I, I, I think that they're great in certain situations. I think the emphasis on you know, the requirements to have them on every building or make every building solar ready is a little over the top. Right. But, but, um, but, you know, responsible building, I think they're appropriate. I think the cool, the cool piece of the solar is not like the ugly panels. It's like the actual shingle. That's a cool technology. Well, so it's like it's going to go there so quickly. It's already gotten so much better. My concern with putting them in now is that in five years, they're going to be like, Ooh, that was a 2021 solar panel, you know? They've said that about panels, but even the solar panel systems 15 years ago, I mean, they've paid for themselves and true. they're, they're there. Because the thing is, it's even though they're going to degrade over time, they're still going to produce. And Yeah, I think if you can just, if you're shingling a house and you put it, all the shingles are solar. I just don't like the lease model. I feel like a sucker. Like, I don't, don't I'm have not that to educated on this. You can I know buy. you don't have to, but like if you go into Home Depot and you walk up to the folding table, what they're selling you is like really cheap solar panels, but they basically own your roof for 15 years. Well, so, just don't do that. I agree. Yeah. I, you gotta, you gotta finance just, it. Yeah. Gyms in a, like a large multifamily building, like in-house gyms. Underrated. Really? Yeah. I, I mean, I think it's healthy, right? Mm -hmm. Get people using them. No one uses them. Right. I, mean, it's, <laughs> it's, I think people like with COVID, I think people kind of. Yeah. I, I think, you know, it, it's kind of the, the intention is right. Right. It's like get people an amenity make it makes makes buildings more competitive with each other you're designing you want to have the nicest stuff and it's a shame that people don't use them enough uh, it's also a shame that it is a required thing that takes up sellable space right that's the thing that we all developers don't mm -hmm. like about it is that you can't put a, a unit there so the the error there isn't really the fact that there's a gym it's that you have to give up a unit or something but yeah underrated i have this parking garage in my new building and it looks out over a baseball field and i'm just like wow, this could have been a nice two bedroom, like for a cost of four parking spots. Are you putting windows there? No, it's an open air garage, which are underrated as relative to enclosed garages. Enclosed, you need the CO2 monitoring system, you know, alarms, oh. all this sort of uh, pretty sophisticated HVAC concerns. Agreed. So, totally. Are you putting anything there? Downside is that any water no, any, any, I, I am, I'm, I need to figure out what I need. There are these big openings and they're just concrete windows. And I need to figure out like something that's cost-effective will provide privacy and security, but won't look like crap. Have Maybe. me look into that team for you. Yeah. I'll Consulting give, fee. I'll get your proposal. <laughs> I'll get, give you a real estate addict t-shirt. Get, get, <laughs> get yourself a skilled iron worker. I bet you they could make something nice there. Oh, yeah. I said cost-effective. Well, this is fun. This was good. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. If it's people want to get a hold of you, how uh, how can they do that? Oof. Brokerage services or yeah, if consulting they, services? If they want to get a hold of me, that's tough. Uh, <laughs> call, but you know, you can look us look us up on Instagram. That's usually the best stuff. It also is a really good marketing team. Does a great job of highlighting all the different business lines and coordinate people. So, what's your uh, IG handle? We use Sene underscore Co, and that's spelled 
S-E-N-N-E. There we go. C-O-O. Beautiful. Awesome. Well, thanks everyone for listening, rating, reviewing, sharing. Hit us up if you want to enjoy the Grossman Companies and uh, we'll catch you on the next one. Peace. Cheers.